Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In this episode, we interview Robin Murphy, who is director at the National Science Foundation Industry University Cooperative Research Center on safety, security, and rescue technologies. She is also the director of the Center for Robot-Assisted Search and Rescue, or the CRAZAR, at the University of South Florida. As the lead of the CRAZAR Rescue Robot Response Team, She's faced sleepless nights and stressful environments at disaster sites such as the World Trade Center after 9-11, La Conchita mudslides in 205, Hurricane Charlie and Katrina in 204, and the Midas gold mine response. Hi Robin, welcome to Talking Robots. Hi, it's great to be here. You were one of the first persons to introduce ground, air and sea robots to disaster response. What is your motivation in developing search and rescue robots? Well, my motivation for developing search and rescue robots came in the year 1995. That was the year that we had the Oklahoma City bombing here in the United States, which was quite a traumatic event, and also the year that we had the Kobe earthquake in Japan. And at that point, there had been so many advances in small robots, things that were being talked about by the military and other applications, that it became very clear here was this great opportunity. Here was an application crying out for small mobile robots to go in and find victims or find shortcuts to victims to assist humans. It was a good application, and it was finally, uh, for years, I've been telling my students, oh, you know, robots can be used for the good of humanity, and it just seemed like, okay, it was time, as we say in the United States, to put up or shut up, and so we became very devoted to search and rescue. What search and rescue robots or or SAR robots have you developed at the Crazar? We don't actually develop robots per se. We work with industry partners and adapt their robots or try to encourage them to make the physical platforms. We add our own software. Uh, We try to try to get sensor manufacturers and researchers and sensors to work with us to create more usable payloads and evaluate them. And one of the reasons why we do this is because these are uh, search and rescue is an extreme environment. There's heat, there's dust and dirt. You have to wash things off. The way, you know, if you, if you go through an area, uh, think of some, a building like the World Trade Center. The building you're in collapsed upon you. There's all of this water from the sewer system, so you've got this, this, this uh, contamination. And then if you're in a very bad collapse, there's a lot, of, a lot of body fluids. There's a lot of things that must be cleaned off. So just that simple act of making a robot waterproof is usually beyond what you would expect a graduate student to do because there's no research. That's implementation. That's manufacturing skills. It's great to do, but it's hard to really make a contribution for a thesis. So we find teaming with industry is the way to go. So typically, uh, to generalize, what type of features or capabilities are needed to make a useful rescue robot? Well, we tell people that a rescue robot is, is not 
not designed to be an autonomous, a fully autonomous agent. So we're not looking at creating lieutenant commander data to go in and then come back and tell us stuff. We're looking at it to be a cooperative tool. Uh, it's, it's projecting the ability to project the human into this situation. So you need mobility, right, to get them in there. Uh, you need good sensors, though. So one of the things we always see is somebody always gets a really great physically agile robot and then gives us the world's worst camera. And it's like, no, oh, dudes, you know, it's got to be black, you know, oh, it's black and white because, you know, that's cheap. It's like, ah, but color is an important cue. If you see something colorful, you go and check it out. It may be somebody's clothes, right, which would lead to them, to the person itself. So we always say you have to have at least one video camera with pan, tilt, and zoom. We've had real problems with robots that expected the, the, the whole robot to be able to maneuver to give you the, the pan or the tilt aspect. And that turns out not to work very well because in confined spaces, if you're doing urban search and rescue, you're going into rubble that people couldn't have gotten into. So there's often no room to turn the robot. And we saw this also happen in uh, mine disaster where we were entering a void and we were essentially, the robot was repelling down, it couldn't look to the left or right because it didn't have enough, you know, it had to fight gravity to turn to the left and right because of the way, you know, it was hanging straight down. So we need pan tilt zoom cameras. We like thermal imaging, uh, something to see the heat profiles is, is good. We always have two-way audio. Two-way audio, in, you know, if you find a victim, no one has found a victim, only... Uh, no one's found a survivor yet, but if we did, we would need to talk with them. But you also need two-way audio, we found, for everything, including aerial vehicles, so that you can hear the state of the robot, what it's doing. Is its wheel spinning? Is it, you know, is it having problems? Is it fighting the wind? These things are very important for us to be able to hear as well. Can you maybe present a couple of the robots you're using and what they have in terms of sensors and actuators? We use a wide range of robots. So at uh, most recently at Crandall Canyon, Utah, the mine disaster where there were several miners lost in a collapse of that mine about uh, 2,000 feet underground, uh, Inducted Services of Canada and Pipeline, uh, PipeEye International combined their systems to create in three days a robot that looks like a small tank but with a what looks like to be a coffee thermos at the back. And so it's having to go through uh, an 8 and 7 eighths inch borehole down 2,000 feet. So it had to be long and skinny to get down the borehole. But then when it arrives on the floor of the, the mine, it had to be able to crawl around in muck. So being you know small and skinny doesn't do much for you because you're going to get covered in muck, your, your sensors. So that thermos would rotate up and then that had a pan-tilt-zoom camera to look around, so at least it got it a few inches above, uh, almost a foot above, about 10 inches above the, uh, of the robot's platform to look around. So that was built, uh, and it was built very rapidly, so we didn't have any audio. We didn't have two-way audio. It was just trying to get that unique configuration that we hadn't, nobody had really been thinking about for that, that use fast enough to get it down there. But it had a very powerful uh, pan-tilt-zoom with a, with lights, and of course, when you, you go into total darkness, you can never have enough light. And what we typically find with, with manufacturers of lights is that they either give us too little so you can't see, you know, more, you know, barely the nose at the end of your, your face kind of thing, 
are you see so much light that it's like, you know, too bright, you know, turn it down, you know, and then, of course, that's when you discover they forgot to give you a switch to do dimming, you know, and control it. Usually the, the inductance made by American Standard Robotics have those kind of features that we like. Now, when we were at Hurricane Katrina, we were the first to fly micro-air vehicles, both uh, fixed-wing platforms and helicopters. And then after post-Katrina, which happened in August, in in, uh, November, December of that year, we came back and we had permission to fly and survey damage to all these multi-story commercial buildings. And that was ostensibly to, to aid the structural engineers in learning how to assess damage, and this was a new tool because, you know, before you could only look up or you had to wait for the Coast Guard to do flyovers. So this was a, a, a new idea, but also gave us tons of information about how you're going to fly these, these little small helicopters, uh, these miniature helicopters close in what we call close urban uh, quarters, and that had on it uh, uh, a pan-tilt camera as well. So the zoom became very important. But what was interesting is that the human eye is very, very good at seeing things that when you take a picture, you know, that, that aren't there. So, so we had, we used the camera, wireless video link to the camera, and thought we were getting great, and we, we collected tons of video. But we also had the camera, when we found something particularly good, take a high-resolution photograph. And that high-resolution photograph was the, was the big win because even though it looked like, you know, the, the structural people said, oh, look, there's something there and there, but when they went to the high-resolution, that was the big win. One thing which I think must be really challenging is to adapt these robots to different very complex environments. You spoke of the World Trade Center. You spoke of the, the mining accidents. Here we have a flooded area. How do, you, do you have to have a different type of robot for every type of scenario, or do you think we could go towards some generic rescue robot? I think that you've just given a great reason why there is no one-size-fits-all or one-style robot fits all. Uh, and... Every time we say we know what one looks like, uh, we have a new disaster that, that discover, we discover something new. So I think one of the exciting things about rescue robotics is that we're now seeing them deployed ad hoc, but we're seeing them deployed, and that means that every time is a new, a new time. There's something to be known there. I think that we're going to see whole families. I think you're going to see in ground robots, uh, the traditional tracked vehicles would be very good, but I think there we've we've seen cases at the minus gold mine with a with the repelling with that kind of thing. You need a legged robot. I think snake robots are very going to be a very very important family of robots to have in the future for ground robots. Aerial vehicles we're seeing really this this use of of helicopters. I know there's some movement toward these quad rotors. Uh, they have some payload restrictions, and you really do need to carry up your camera equipment and wireless equipment. But but those look very good. Uh, so those are for very close urban things. We've been working with unmanned surface vehicles. So those are basically robot rafts, and those can be used for inspecting damage after, uh, uh, you know, to bridges and seawalls and things because you can see both above the waterline and below the waterline. And if you just throw one of these little ROVs, these little miniature submarines, they typically get swept away by the current. So having a, a boat that's more powerful and then you can hang off one of these uh, unmanned uh, underwater vehicles, that combination is also a, we think is going to be a very important direction to go in. I truly find it inspiring that you're bringing these search and rescue robots out of the lab to actual disaster sites where, where they can be useful. What is the Crazar Emergency Response Team? 
Well, the Crazer Emergency Response Team consists of a group of us that have undergone training. We are actually members of Florida Task Force 3. Uh, I have not been able to keep up my... Uh, totally keep up my technical search specialist uh, certification, but we've put in over 300 hours of training. Our director of operations is Sam Stover. He is actually a search team manager for Indiana Task Force 1, one of the 28 FEMA teams, and he is an instructor in these, these techniques. So we have people who have a combination of professionals, rescue professionals, working with scientists who have put in that extra effort to get trained in the field and to work side-by-side side with the emergency responders to learn the safety procedures and go through some of all that grunt work so that when we go to the – that we can be invited and can be uh, – uh, and, and act in the field in a safe way and uh, not uh, not scare the emergency responders off by us being such geeky scientists you know, that we, we have the right equipment, we know the terminology, we know the safety procedures. And so that gives them the confidence to let us work with them. Now, when we go to the field, it's, it's always the same deal. I mean, when, when we go to response, all the equipment, with the exception of the helicopters, is theirs. I mean, the helicopter just requires so much training to use. Nobody typically there is there. But the ground vehicles, it's like, look, if this is an unsafe condition or you don't feel comfortable with our level of training, you take the robot. We can do some hasty training. So hasty training is an actual term that means that, you know, a very short period of time versus the 80 hours we'd normally put a person through to be trained on using a robot in these environments. You know, we can we can give that to you. And they've always said, no, you know, they've always started out saying, yeah, we'll, we'll just take the robots. And But then they're, they're like, no, no, come with us, you know, because we, we seem to fit in. This has been a, a great source of pride. And that makes it a little easier to collect data. One of the things now that when I'm in the field is that as we've moved, we've seen the big technical barrier, not so much the platforms, not so much the sensors. There's plenty of research. Are the software, are the, the autonomy that would make this so much easier, the interfaces. But really the human-robot interaction side is the killer, is that we're forgetting there's a human in the loop in here some way. And, and we're seeing that. And so when I go to the field, I can, can uh, take notes on that if I'm just around, even if... Uh, so it's always great to be included when we go to the go to the field to have a member of the team out with the robots with the emergency responders to observe how they really use it. What are the main challenges and difficulties in bringing these SAR robots to the field? There's the challenges work on so many dimensions. Probably as as roboticists, the first dimension is well, you know, what's wrong with my platform? Well, besides the fact that we rarely get a perfect match on what we need. Uh, what we thought we need and what we actually need in the field. The robots that we get, even though they're manufactured by companies, commercial companies, just have a, a very low uh, reliability level. Robots are still very new. Uh, the manufacturing techniques aren't there. We don't know how they're going to be used, so it's hard for manufacturers to anticipate how they're going to break. Our lab did a, a, a series of studies uh, from different robots, uh, I think five different robots, and then found a similar study by the U.S. Army. And the conclusion was that no matter what size, shape, or, or environment the robot was working in, it had only a mean time between failures between 20 and 24 hours. So that means, I mean, weeks are what the standard mean time between failure for most manufactured equipment is. You know, just, just uh, those are just incredibly low numbers. It means, you know, you've got... 
within two days, you've got an, a, a term, what we call a terminal failure, something that we can't fix in the field, right? It means it has to be shipped back to the manufacturer or has to be done on a, on a real, on a good tool bench. You know, you just can't do it out in the mud. So that's, that's, a, that's a limiting factor. The robots just typically don't work well. And with me, my name's Murphy, you know, Murphy's Law, whatever can go wrong well. You know, usually the robot fails sooner rather than later. You know, usually when a lot of people are looking at it. So that's another problem. Uh, another challenge to bringing them out is, is that we often see well-intentioned scientists over-hype their robot. And uh, a couple of them have had the good graces. We... we we, I won't take anything to the field that I haven't seen work in pretty harsh conditions. But we've done a lot of exercises. We've done about 18 exercises with emergency responders where they're collapse building and they invite us to come in and we travel and we'll, we'll bring one or two groups with us. And they'll say, no, no, my stuff will do this, this, and this. And it's like, you know, it doesn't even go 15 minutes, you know, before some there's some problem. And so... That that can that can sometimes and and in particular it was very uh, troubling at the Crandall Canyon Utah disaster. We had a lot of miners trapped below ground, and it was getting a lot of attention. And uh, at least two robotics groups called the press to say that well they're not using our robot and our robot could do stuff. And their robot had been considered. It turns out the Mine Safety and Health Administration has been doing robots since the 1990s and actually owns two robots, right? So they're actually fairly astute and keep up with it. And there were various good reasons why those robots just really weren't ready for prime time. But it was really kind of appalling to see well-intentioned people. And, they, and, you know, I'm sure they were frustrated that they didn't think people were paying attention to them, but used the media to try to promote their technology. When, and then that kind of makes, uh, makes the emergency response community very suspicious, very think that we're scientists are just trying to, you know, hyper stuff and get attention and not really trying to solve the problem. You've been out helping at a lot of these, uh, at a lot of disaster sites. Can you maybe give us a, a whole scenario? So how it is when you arrive on the spot, uh, who are the people with which you react? What is their first reaction? And uh, basically how it, how it turns out in the end? Uh, I love your question because it assumes that somehow this is all like the first time we've, we've all met. So you can't go to a disaster unless you are invited by the incident command. We don't leave the university. We don't call our team in unless we have something in writing or an email that specifically invites us because there's all sorts of legal and safety ramifications. Well, how do you get invited? Well, think about what happens when a disaster happens. That's a high-stress moment. So you're not thinking about, oh, yeah, you know, why don't we just see about these people, you know, that we've heard about. So you, you you have all sorts of people calling you and saying, no, no, my stuff will work. And you just say no to them, right, because you've never met them before. 
So instead, it's based on prior relationships, what's been seen, what they know, the fact that we've trained over 400 emergency responders on how to use these robots. We've trained about an equal number of these uh, emergency managers so that they know what these costs, what it means on training, what's it going to do in terms of manpower. How would you go about acquiring this? What would you look for? How would you write a contract? So it's usually they, they know us directly and they invite us to come in. Uh, to assist, or they have been recommended, we've been recommended by someone who knows us. So we lose four to six hours just in that, that process. We, we pack up the lab, we, we do the logistics, and then we show up. And then we show up, and it's always hurry up and wait. So we, we you know, hurry to get there. You know, clock is ticking. As, as you know, uh, if you the best chance of survival is it begins to bottom out. The mortality curve inc- increases at about the 48, 52-hour mark. So you're trying to get there. Usually it's about 12 hours into it before they realize they need the assets and another 12 to get there. So now you're at the 24 mark. You've really only got a day to really make a difference. The rest, it becomes kind of useful to experiment with the technology and, and hope it works. But in terms of really making a difference in life-saving, you've really got one day. But you've got to check in. You've got to introduce yourself to everyone. You've got to show what it can do. You've got to then work out where the needs are, and they'll say, well, I want to use it here, and you'll say, oh, no, I don't think that's going to work there. Uh, this is the kind of place, here's what this robot can do. We've got this other thing. Now, that might be able to work there, but you know, we'll have to modify it. So you go through that process. And, of course, you're not getting a whole lot of sleep. So at this point, what, everybody on site, even though supposedly you have shifts and stuff, has has really lost about 24 hours of sleep. And so they're going into a heavy sleep deficit. We're also in a sleep deficit. So we're moving slow. Then we have to check out all of our equipment to make sure it it works. We put it into backpacks because we've transported in these protective cases. Now we've got to put them into the backpack so it can be carried on to site. And usually by the time we arrive, uh, we're still at the stage where you have to physically walk. You might have a, a little one of these uh, outdoor terrain vehicles that can carry you part of the way, but you're having to walk through the rubble and carry things. We recently, in December, where a parking garage collapsed in Jacksonville, and so we were having to carry up stuff and climb up uh, uh, ladders straight ladders to get into the rubble pile, which was very irregular, rebar sticking out every which way. And so that was very slow to get in those places. And then we'd stand there and say, okay, how are we going to get the equipment to that place over there? Where are we going to stand? And when we stand there, how are we going to get off if something starts to slide? So you have the safety meeting associated with it. And then finally, you insert the robot. And of course, the robot runs that we see typically are done within uh, anywhere from five to twenty minutes, so it's like you've spent hours to get one or two runs. And at Jacksonville, we we had uh, two runs, a total of two runs, but that was over a fourteen-hour period. So you know, by the time you look at all the time we spent spent on that, so it was you know maybe a total of forty-five minutes that the robot was actually used. So there is this huge logistical component. So then you come back. Usually, when you go to the field, you have uh, one person from the from the actual incident command stay with you, both as a safety officer and because they want to see the data too. And sometimes they don't because Sam has is, is got such expertise. Sam Stover has such expertise. They, they, they use his judgment. If there's 
stretch for manpower, we're, we're okay to go. Then you bring the robots back, and then everybody wants to see the tapes. So you have to play back. I usually sit down and immediately cut out 15 to 30-second clips of the most what appears to be the most meaningful information because they'll want to see it, and then they'll want to re- believe, you know, release it to the press. And so they need clips that they can, can do that. And then everybody looks and talks about it, and uh, we get some food, and then we start the cycle again of hurry up and wait. A lot of times we'll go back to our, our we have a response vehicle if we're responding, we've taken our truck and haven't uh, flown in, we go uh, turn on the air conditioning, some music really low, and sleep in the car. What do you think could speed up the process? What you what you just heard was in, was the fact that it's an ad hoc deployment, and you lose a good twelve to twenty four hours in requesting and getting the assistance there. What's going to speed up the process is for these robots, uh, search and rescue robots, to become mainstream. And right now, none of the the in the United States, uh, none of the federal teams uh, can purchase robots. They're not on the authorized cash list, and the state teams usually just duplicate whatever the federal teams do. So uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology is working on creating a set of standards that would satisfy our Department of Homeland Defense, uh, Security, and then they would put this on the list and they would start being able to, to buy them. And then so even if they were on the list that you could buy them, it'd take like a year to buy them, and then we'd have to – our somebody would have to train them and get up to speed. So it's going to be about, it would take about two years, but really the way to get these things used is not to have people like us use it, but to have the regular responders, the emergency response teams, the search and rescue teams, have this as part of their cash and use it. You spoke before about the fact that there's always a human in the loop, and a lot of your work is concentrated on understanding how the human-robot interactions can lead to more efficient search and rescue. What are the lessons learned over the years in terms of how humans and robots can form a search and rescue team? Well, the first, the first real lesson that we learned was that, you know, I come from an uh, artificial intelligence background, you know, so my first thing is like, oh, we're going to make everything fully autonomous and teleoperation is just a necessary evil to that end. And the first thing that we learned is that, well, no, actually the human's always going to be in the loop. They don't necessarily want to be the driver, right? But even if you could make autonomous perception in these highly deconstructed environments, which is extremely unlikely, even if you could do autonomous navigation and stuff, you know, that, that's fine. You're not going to replace the human because these are novel circumstances. And you need that, a gestalt ability of the human to see what's going on. But what you want to do, so these are re- what we call remote presence applications versus taskable agents where you're going to just send the robot off and then wait for it to come back. Another problem with this idea of a taskable, fully autonomous agent that would go off and do stuff and then come back and tell you is that what if it dies in place? So you didn't get the information it saw along the way, and that information along the way may be may trigger something that's important. A lot of times they'll tell us, oh, we're just looking for the victim. And in fact, what we were able to show is that they're, they're, they're also doing some structural and, and, and safety assessment as they go. So whatever they say their job is and what their job is written down is not really the job they're doing in the field. They're taking uh, the ability of this huge you know, human perceptual and reasoning capability to understand this new situation. So we have these, so our first lesson was that there are these remote presence applications of which semi-autonomy is going to be great, 
That was that was our first lesson. Uh, the second lesson was that two heads are better than one. That actually the perception of working from a robot's viewpoint in these highly deconstructed environments is so demanding. Two people looking at the imagery can do a better job of understanding where they are and finding victims. Uh, and, in, 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 you know, we've shown this with all these different tests with, with well over 100 uh, participants, emergency responders who are trained to use the robots doing this, that they will do significantly better, nine times more likely. Two heads are, are, are nine times more likely to find a victim or what they're looking for than, than a single person. So this idea of a one person running the robot as a good idea is not currently a good idea, and unless we make huge gains in perception, not necessarily navigation, but in perception, we're going to have that problem. Another lesson that we learned um, is that navigation is only 44% of the problem. It's that when we looked, we were seeing that our techniques, everything converges on a move the robot, look a lot. Move the robot, look, look a lot. And so the robot's only moving 51% of the time. And this is consistent across all of our disasters. It's kind of eerie that you, that you, you see about the same percentage. So the, it's not really about navigation. It's really about that perceptual component, and that's what's causing the time, is that you can't, uh, people instinctively realize they can't move and look at the same time, so they're stopping, they're looking around. The better performers do this naturally. And on top of it, even when they're uh, even when they're moving, they're having trouble seeing, and so we're seeing that perception is is sixty fifty six percent of the problem in navigation. If you you made navigation fully autonomous, you just pointed the camera, you what we call fly or drive the camera, you would still have this huge component that you need to come up with some sort of autonomous assistance for. So those are some of the things we've learned. We've also learned about backseat drivers. If you have uh, the default uh, role of a person, if you get more than one person and they're not trained to work cooperatively, it's to start telling the guy how to drive, the operator how to drive. And that was just kind of a, a funny thing we learned along the way. So those are some of our major findings about human-robot interaction. Have you studied robot-victim interactions? I imagine that if uh, you're a victim, you don't know what's happened, you're under the rubble, and all of a sudden a robot comes up, uh, I don't know how the people would react to uh, well, in simulations where we've, we've done it, uh, even with people knowing the robot and we've worked with uh, the medical community on this, the, the word that they keep using is creepy. You can you, uh, imagine you, you've been trapped, terrible things, you're in pain or you're in extreme discomfort. You've got a set of bright lights and a loud noise coming at you, and that's all you can see and hear. So it's, it's actually, and it's coming for your face. Great, and you can't move or interact with it in any meaningful way, so it's not a good thing. And you notice how robots are always painted black. There's this sort of science fictiony, high tech, must be black, kind of thing. Uh, that makes it even worse because you can't see it in total darkness. So we've we've been working with uh, medical emergency response professionals, uh, medical uh, doctors, and uh, believe it or not, uh, theater people, visual and performing arts, to make these robots less creepy so that they're moving at, at the right speed. They, that people, we, we've shown, and, and this is extension of Cliff's NAS work had predict, at Stanford, had predicted people react to robots socially. And indeed, people make eye contact, and they try to keep a social distance. And, and so our robots need to behave socially as well, so that they don't, they don't unconsciously give off these, these uh, dissonant 
uh, mixed signals on affect and, and make people uncomfortable. We've also looked at, uh, with Carolina Chang at the uh, University of Simon Bolivar in uh, Venezuela, she's been looking at changing the protocols for triage. So the medical doctors, you know, if they find you, uh, they have this, this Usually they use a protocol called START, where, oh, you test this, you test this, you see if they've got a pulse, you, you try to talk to them, you assess. Well, some of this you can't do with a robot right now. And so she's been working on reconfiguring that protocol into something that's, that's more meaningful, that can be done when you, the doctor, are hours away, separated by hours of extrication from that person, that you can use the robot. And we're also looking at how to use the robot to talk and be a conduit, a media, a relationship between uh, the people who are running the robot and the people, you know, behind those. You know, can, can you use it to have your family talk to these people? The, uh, what are the things that the robot can be served as, as a connective device? Because once you find a person, even though we've, no one's ever found a survivor with a robot, uh, it's probably, if you use the, the data from the Mexico City earthquake, it's probably going to be 10 hours before they'll be extricated. So what are you going to do with them in those 10 hours? And the robot's going to be that lifeline. So it's very important that they're not creepy, that they're, they're affective, that, they're, that they give off the right signals and that they enable the right kind of relationship. I imagine that SAR robots have a huge market potential since they could be useful for any city across the world. Is the market ready for SAR robots? You know, people always think there's a market for search and rescue robots, and right now there is no market in the United States because they're not approved on the federal list. And it is going to be a niche market. It's, it's going to be like bomb squad robots. It's not going to be the same as like the Roomba market. But there's going to be, there's going to be a good niche for it. And we think that uh, they'll become, as robots become more common, people will start thinking of new uses for them. But right now, there is no market in the United States, and we're not seeing a big push in, in the European or Asian communities right now. In our podcast, we've only interviewed a single, a single woman up to now, and that was Barbara Webb. Why do you think that there are, are maybe less women or high-profile uh, women in robotics? It's, it's been one of the, the oddities is every now and then realizing that if I go into a room that has more than three women out of 100 people, I'm probably in the wrong place. And being an emergency response, which is pretty much dominated by, by, uh, by men, it, it shows up over and over again. I think women have gone less into robotics uh, because they, the numbers in engineering sciences have been typically low. I think in artificial intelligence, you've seen a large number of women. And just as the, uh, those of us who, uh, many of us in robotics, women in robotics, came out of the artificial intelligence community looking to do a more applied or physically situated artificial intelligence and got into robotics that way. Do you think there's anything we could do to favor this? I think that, that women don't realize, they think of robotics as the control theory. They think of it as the hardware. They think of it as the Legos, where you spend more 
darn time keeping the Legos together. Hint, use white glue, okay, and to hold the Legos together, then you do the good stuff, which is the programming, the actual use, the bigger picture. And so I think emphasizing to women that that robotics isn't just hardware. There's the programming. There's the human-robot interaction. There's this use of emotion. There's this, this elegance of applications and working with people. It's not about things. And certainly emergency response, it's all about the people. Robots, how to make them an effective player, an effective team maker. And I hope that would attract women into the field because it's a very worthy field and really needs the brightest and best minds working on these difficult issues. Let's talk a bit about the future now. What rescue robot would you like to see developed in the near future? I have so many robots I'd like to see, to see developed in the future, but if I had to pick just one family of robot style, I think the snake robots are the way to go. I think that there's been some amazing advances in snakes. I, I've been particularly impressed with, with how he chose its work at, at Carnegie Mellon. And seeing those kind of mobility that it can go up and down and climb in and out uh, of structures is very good. Getting that hardened and getting uh, more sensors on them. So having just a camera at the end isn't really what we need. We need to have more. We also need the robot to be able to feel and and see from more perspectives and and carry more weight and and, uh, deal with the tether issues and power issues. But I think if if I had to pick one robot to push on, it'd be the, the snake. And 20 years from now, in which field will robotics have had the biggest impact on our lives? I think in general, in healthcare, I think the use of robots that don't look like robots, like smart beds and that can help assist with the elderly, I think rehabilitation, I think, uh, you know, things, the devices that help you exercise your knee or your tendonitis, things that uh, adjust and help you, you train to learn new tasks, this sort of uh, assistive robotics is, is going to make a is going to become so ubiquitous that we won't even notice it's there. We won't even be able to imagine how we lived without it. Thanks, Robin, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Thank you for having me. That was Robin Murphy on Search and Rescue Robots. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.